in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you are joining us in the daily Bible reading as we read through the Bible together as a church. If you're doing that, you know we're in a challenging section of the Scripture on our daily Bible reading. We're in the book of Job. And as Job is wrestling with pain and sorrow and suffering, you know, he's thinking through all of that. And at one point in, in, our, in our reading that was just a couple days ago, Job is just looking and he asks the question, where, do, where does wisdom come from? Like, where can you find wisdom? Right, where can that ever be discovered? And he just notes, he says, God understands its way. God understands, and, and he knows its place. But the way it's even said is there is a sense it's not found anywhere else. There's a sense of wisdom, of comprehension, of the ability to know how to live. Wisdom has been defined by some as knowing the right thing to do at the right time, in the right way, and to the right extent. It's, it's, it's doing life well and, and to handle it and navigate situations well. And so often there's this journey of looking for it. And Job says, well, you know, where do we get that? We get it from God. And then he just prescribes it for us. He says, and, he, and to man, he says, God says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. He says, in essence, you could get to it. And he sums up what Solomon says often in the book of Proverbs. Here's what wisdom is. It's found in this place of knowing that there is a God, fearing Him. Not in this terrifying fear, but this recognition. He's God. I mean, He is God. He's the sovereign, almighty God, and to live our lives under that, in that reality, that's wisdom. To operate every day in that understanding that God is God and He's over that, and then because He is God, to say, God, rescue me from that which is wrong. Rescue me from evil. He says, if you have that, that's wisdom. And that's what we're offering you tonight. So we think about the book of Proverbs. He's inviting us to a life lived under God, of coming and saying, I want to I bring my life under his care. I want to bring his, my life under the things he has for me. And then him to rescue me from making mistakes and, and, and sin that would bring destruction and pain. That is definitely what he's offering us tonight. And I want to tell you, that's what the book of Proverbs is, a place where it would help us do that. And so as we dive into it this evening, may God take his word and help that to land in a way that would bring you into such a space and, and find that, yep, this is what wisdom is. It's found in this space. May God cause that to be all that he has for us. Well, you can open up your little booklets over to, to verse 16. That's where we're picking it up tonight. We made uh, through verse 15 last week, about halfway in the chapter. going to try to finish the rest of it. We'll see if we can make it, but we'll definitely give it a shot. So there in verse 16, we get this proverb where it simply says it this way. Take the garment of one who is a surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge uh, when it is for a seductress. So it's a, it's a statement, in many ways a statement of fact. He says, you should take this garment or you should take a guarantee for one who is a surety, one who puts themselves out in this way for a stranger, for someone they don't know. And with it, hold it as a pledge. Hold that as something that you're going to hold for a commitment when it is for a seductress. Now, quick FYI, if you have a different translation, you might be thinking, that's not how mine reads, and that's probably true. That uh, understanding of seductress there, it is probably better translated foreigner. Uh, it's not necessarily speaking of a, of a sinful lifestyle, though there's not, there, it, there is some ways you can go that way, but most transla translators come at it and say, really, it's a statement saying much of what it said there in verse 16, that in one sense, he's calling us to a way of living wisely, 
with somebody who's putting their life that way. I think about it this way. Maybe it's just easier to give uh, David Guzik and his commentary on it. said it this way. Solomon's advice here is that if you loan to someone who has already foolishly agreed to be a surety for a stranger, make sure you get the depositor guarantee. It's like if they put themselves out for somebody foolishly, you know, and you're like, okay, well, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to be gracious into their life. It doesn't mean that, you know, I don't, but I'm going to be a little bit more cautious. I'm going to be a little bit more careful in the midst of it. If they were foolish enough, he says, to be a surety for a stranger, they should be regarded as a credit risk. And it's just kind of a simple piece of wisdom that in one sense, hey, you know, you should do it. Again, it's not a place of saying not to be kind or, or do that, but just to recognize that it is such and a simple piece of wisdom that uh, would be good in many ways in our lives. Well, leaving that simple piece of wisdom, the next proverb gives it this way. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. So bread gained by deceit, lying to somebody, stealing, uh, you know, kind of getting that. He says when you do that, it, is, it has its own sweetness to it. It is in that sense something that can be just enticing and drawing somebody to it. But there's a, there's a downside to this. But afterward, his mouth will be filled with gravel afterwards there's a sense that that's going to go an entirely different way. Now, it's really a visual thing. In some sense, you're almost meant to almost feel this, that in one sense, you look at this and say, okay, well, at that moment, it tastes sweet. It, it has a sweetness to it, but afterward, it's like eating gravel. Uh, the idea is, is a very figurative way that it's going to taste terrible. I mean, like, it's going to be like dirt. It's going to be like, it was, it was not a pleasurable thing. It tasted good a moment ago, but it's not going to go down well. It, it, it's not going to go well into life. And it's a very simple understanding, but so important to understand. So often, this is really the enticement of sin. Sin invites us, you know, into something that sounds like it would be good. And it, often, it's an immediate, you know, offer is. It's immediate kind of gratification is, but it will always go about poorly. How wise is the person who recognizes this proverb and reverses, you know, in many ways, its understanding? I think about it. It said that Moses did that. When it tells us in Hebrews, it says, By faith, Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. It says he had a choice. He had a choice in his life. He said, okay, I could choose sin, but it's a passing pleasure. I, I could, I could take life there, but it's going to be this, you know, sweet taste up front, and it's going to have this after effect that's bad. He says, I'm going to take a different road that might always not be the most immediately pleasurable road, but it's pleasing to God. It's a life that would go there and to be with the people of God. And he calls us in many ways to have a very different understanding of life. And it's something that there's not any one of us that could look at this evening going, great, I'm glad that was somebody else needed that. I don't ever really struggle with that. No, you do. I mean, this is what makes sin, it's enticing. It's a passing pleasure. It, it is pleasurable for a moment, but afterwards it brings in destruction. To believe that, to believe that is to recognize that you don't want to just kind of look at that immediate offer of things, to say, I don't want to do that. If you, it might seem good for a moment, but I want to look to the after. I want to look to where that's going and make my choice by faith in the things that are, are, are good and, and calling us to live lives that would be entirely different that way, ones that would make those choices like by Moses by faith and go an entirely different direction. May God cause you and I to be such people. Well, you can turn your page. Next proverb, verse 18. 
Plans are established by counsel. And by wise counsel, wage war. So plans, that's the focus, this idea of looking ahead and making plans for the future or making plans in life. He says that that can be established by counsel, that we need to be those who receive advice, that we need to be those who are open to counsel. By wise counsel, he adds to it, you could wage war. Now, this is actually one of those Proverbs that's been woven in and around through the book of Proverbs. If you've been with us, this is probably the third or fourth time that we've come across this admonition. I think about it back in chapter 11, where it said, you know, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And it just invites us to this understanding that we're not really meant to do life alone, that we're made for a group of people that you know, should be able to receive wisdom from other people, that we should be able to receive counsel, we should be able to do that. There's an independent streak that is sinful inside of us that can make us make bad choices. And so, in one sense, it's just encouraging us to be those who, you know, as we're making plans, that we are open to that. This proverb adds to it by this understanding that by wise counsel you could wage war. And most Hebrew scholars kind of look at this with an understanding that wise counsel is even more important when great matters are involved. You know, that, yeah, we need counsel all the time, but you know, if you're going to do something that is as serious as a war, you know, then you should be very careful in those choices. And I think that makes sense in our lives, right? I mean, we, we need counsel. Uh, you don't necessarily need counsel on, you know, like what socks you wear every day. Well, some of us actually need a little help every now and then with that, you know, but, you know, but for the most part, it's like, well, I can make that decision. But the bigger the decision, the more that we should be like, you know what, before we make this decision, let's ask, let's make sure, let's receive counsel, let's, let's not just kind of move into this without, you know, receiving that. And biblically, we're kind of called to that, that we're called to this community of believers where we're not meant to be making decisions alone and meant to be able to say, hey, I sure could use wisdom and, and counsel. And he calls us to that kind of mentality so that we could be established, so that we could make good choices and all of that. May you be such a person that looks to that that brings other people into the decisions that you're making so that they can be made, wow, just helping that kind of wisdom is a great place for us to come. All right. Next one, verse 19. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. He who is a talebearer, who goes about as a talebearer, which is a, uh, one of the biblical words for a gossip, uh, one who just is gossiping, just goes about everywhere gossiping about everybody, telling everybody uh, the secrets. He says, if they do that, then they are those who, who are just constantly telling things they shouldn't tell, revealing secrets, going the very opposite of what Proverbs has been calling us to, which is to a place of, of, of protecting, of love, covering a multitude of sins. And he says, but here's a gossip. They do that. He says, but here's what you and I need to learn. Therefore, if this is true, if gossips gossip, if people who are gossipers, they will continue gossiping. Therefore, do not associate. Do not allow that to be a place there with one who flatters with their lips. And so the idea of flattery here is only adding to that idea of gossip, that they, they, they say great things like they're, you know, uh, oh, I'd never tell. I'd never, you know, hey, you can tell me anything. But here's a pretty simple proverb. It's not a hard one, right? Some of you are way ahead of it. Simply put, if somebody gossips to you, they will gossip about you. If somebody gossips to you, 
they will gossip about you. It is a pretty simple little lesson, but may it be something you learn. It's one of those crazy things that some people get like, I had no idea. I mean, yeah, they talked to me about everybody else, but I didn't think they would talk to others about me. And, you know, they always told me like, oh, you can tell me, I, you can trust me. And it's like they're, they're flattering you. I mean, you, you should be able to look right through this and say, if you can't keep all the other people's secrets, why would I unpack my secrets to you? Why would I bring you into my world? I mean, that's not a trustworthy place. And it's just a good piece of wisdom uh, that for many of us, we could just learn and just kind of catch it there. Just red flags going off when someone's gossiping to you that this is a place where it's like, okay, I can't, I, I can't trust you into that place. May it be that we go the other way. May it be that people hear from you that you are doing what the Bible calls us to do, love covering a multitude of sins, that we are not gossips, that we are those who are trustworthy and protective and, and, and that and being rescued from those kinds of choices. And yet, boy, what practical wisdom uh, that could help and save uh, many a person from heartache and trouble, hopefully rescuing even right now. Verse 20. Whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. So the first focus here is this negative thing where you're looking at someone who is mocking their parents, cursing uh, their parents, and, and cursing who they are, whether his father or his mother. He says, here's what's going to happen. That's going to go badly for you. Your lamp, your light's going to go out. Your, your life will become into a place will be put out into deep darkness. Now, this is an interesting one just to park on just for a second because we think about it, and it should be so foundational. It should be so much understood, right? I mean, if you are a Bible student, you would understand 10 commandments, right? I mean, 10 commandments, like one of them, you know, right there, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. That God has established the, the place of family. He's established the place of, of honor in the midst of the family. And God says, hey, you should do this. In fact, when Paul's talking about this, and he refers to it in the New Testament, it says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the earth. So this is the first one of the Ten Commandments that actually include, this will go good for you. Like if you have this, learn this, this will work good into your life. I just want to tell you it's true. It's just saying, hey, if you, if you get this, this, this does things into life. It, it, it creates both character and things that learned there will flow into the rest of life. Not learned there. Will, will bring destruction into the rest of life. That, that when his foundational principles of what that is is so important, and yet we live in such days that maybe we need to hear this loudly. I found myself thinking about it. In 2 Timothy, it gives us a warning. It says, but know this in the last days, the days that are getting near the, the end of times, getting close to the coming of Christ, which I think we're living in. It says, know this in the last days, perilous times are going to come. It's really going to be difficult. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving. It's a pretty fascinating list. He says, it's going to get really difficult in the last days. I mean, this is what the world is going to be like. And if you're looking at this, even this partial list that I have up there, you would understand, like, uh, that's our world, like, right there. But in the list, notice, he says, here's one of the things that's going to move it. It's going to become a place where disobedience, dishonor to families, that's going to become the norm. That's, instead of that being, you know, normal to be that way, it'll be the opposite. In fact, he adds to it, he says, they're going to be unloving. 
And it's an interesting Greek word that I just quickly tie out, throw, toss out to you. The word love there, it, it's not the love that would be often like agape, that would speak of God's love. It's storge, which is family love. And it's a way of saying that it would be that they lack natural affections. They, they lack the, 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 the just basic, you know, character of, of what family and life would be. And yet it's a serious thing to kind of recognize, I say to you, I think that's the world that you and I live in. I think we're living in a world that is more dangerous now. It is, in the words of Paul the Apostle, more perilous now because what's become norm has become very counterintuitive or counter to what God would call us. And so it's just good for us to come into the book of Proverbs and say, hey, that's not where God would have me to be. You know, that to be honoring. I mean, honoring doesn't always mean obedience. There are places where it's like, hey, mom, dad, I love you, but I can't. And, and there's places of working that through, but honor. Honor is always meant to be there. And it's not about how old you are. I mean, some of you are like, man, it's too late for me now. It's like, no, it's not. It's not too, too late to change the way that that works into your life. Say, okay, I want to speak honor. I want to be one that, that just, you know, doesn't flow that way in my life. And may it be because uh, that the consequences of our are long and serious. May God rescue us from folly. May he help us to understand the wisdom that he would have us to live in. And may it cause it to be real. All right. Turn the page. Verse 21. An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. So the, the negative thing that's being held out here is there's somebody who gets their inheritance too quickly, uh, gets it at the beginning in many ways, that gets it early both in life or early in time. He says that's not going to go good. That is not going to be blessed when you could look how far down uh, the, the line that goes. Now, some would see, and that's just a simple kind of a, pre a premise, that there is a place of, you know, getting too much too early can be dangerous in life, and there's probably a little bit of nuggets of truth in this, and yet I can't help but just look through this, and maybe some of you as well, and just think, in one proverb, uh, he gives us a picture of the prodigal son. I mean, he gives us a picture of uh, exactly this reality. I mean, many of you guys know the story that Jesus begins to unpack for us, he says, there's a certain man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided his livelihood. I mean, somehow it's this crazy thing where the son comes and says, hey, give it to me now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait till you die. I don't want to wait till you, I, I want what's mine, and I want it now. And it goes badly. You know the story of the prodigal son. He gets it. He wastes it on prodigal living. His life ends up being destroyed. He ends up being in a place where he's feeding the pigs. And, and, and it's a horrendous picture of what that would so often do. Now, I think about it in a couple ways. As I, as, I, as I process this through, I want to give you two quick thoughts. One of them is, I, I was really challenged. I'm doing a, 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 another Bible reading right now personally. And I love just in one sense the perspective of this one that invited us to understand in many ways when we think about the prodigal son, it's not just a picture of, of rebels, it's a picture of all of us. In many ways, that's what sin has done to us. We have become, you know, those who took God's creation, took what he had, and said, give it to me now. I don't want you, I don't want your ways, I, I, I want to do, do my own thing, I want to go my own way, that by nature, by sin, all of us have become that. By nature, by sin, that's what sin did is caused us to rebel and, and seek to live our own lives, and yet that always goes badly for us. And, and so I want you to, to think this through, not just as like, yeah, those people are, are bad when they would do that, but to see a, a, just a piece and a flavor of who we are 
And yet I quickly hold out to you that the story of the prodigal son isn't just about destruction. It's about incredible rescue. Most of you know the story because it's there in the end, and just when, when it gets to the end of his life, he comes to himself and recognizes it would be so much better for me to go home. And he goes back, and, and the father welcomes him home, receives him gladly, and, and brings him into that. And Jesus talks about that that's the heart of our God, that that's what he's doing, that he would rescue those, that he would be the one that would rescue from destruction. So kind of a fascinating thing that you could spend a much, lot more time just in this one proverb and say, okay, that's true, and it, and it doesn't go that way, but thankfully our God can reverse this. Our God is the God who can rescue us out of that place that comes there, and that's what He done in Christ. He is the one that rescues us and uh, brings us a much better end. May God make it so. All right. Well, next one, verse 22. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will save you. Don't be the one, he says, that says, you know, I'm going to fix everything. I'll, I'm going to deal with everybody. I'm going to fix all the rights I'm gonna, uh, and, and fix all the wrongs. Somebody did evil to me. I'm going to do evil to them. You know, don't be the one that tries to take all of that onto your own life. He says, instead, you should wait for God. You should say, okay, I'm going to let God deal with this. I'm going to let God be the one that fixes the wrongs and, 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 and is that one that does that because he will do it. He will be that rescue. What an incredible biblical principle, a hard one sometimes to walk through, but it's important. It's given to us in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, Paul refers to it out of the book of Deuteronomy in Romans 12, where he says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, written vengeance is mine. I will repay. So here's the thing, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is this place where we need to say, hey, that's not mine. You know, it's not mine to, you know, pay back what people have done to me. It's not mine to bring about vengeance. It's not mine to do that. I need to say that's God's, and he will do it in his own time. God's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with everything that is in the midst of that. He says, and and there is a place of saying, God, I want to leave this to you. Now, one of the interesting ways that Paul says this here is to think about it this way. He says, don't avenge yourselves. Don't be trying to fix everything in your own life, but rather give place to wrath. And uh, one way to translate that is get out of God's way. Um, you know, that, you know, if, if you're trying to, you know, deal justice in your own life, not only are you doing it poorly, you're, you're in God's way. You're, you know, you're, you're in his way. And in many ways, he can't deal with that in, in the same way. So much better is it for us to be able to say, you know, what? I don't have to, you know, that's God's. I can, you know, as, you know Paul says it in, in that chapter in 12, as much as it depends upon me, I'm going to be at peace with people. doesn't mean they're going to be that way. And then I can say, God, that's yours. H- how much peace there could be found there? You know, if that's honestly a place that you could live, that you would say, okay, I'm not even going to say this. That where you find yourself, you know, lying in bed at night and, and, and thinking through something that somebody did evil and, and against you, and you're like, okay, I'm going to deal, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that email. I'm going to send that 10-page letter or whatever. He says, no, here's the thing. Just stop and say, God, I'm waiting. I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to let you be the one that deals with those things. I'm going to trust you into that place. And how much peace there would bring. How much peace there would bring into lives that in many ways are so needed. And, and he is a God that will come through. May he draw us to be those who navigate those spaces in life more wisely. Well, verse 23, 
Diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord, and dishonest scales are not good. Diverse weights. Uh, we actually talked about this one a little bit last week. It was also mentioned earlier in the chapter. The idea in those days is in an economy where you would often be you know, buying and selling, uh, whether it be grain or fruit, you would do so by, by weights. And the idea of a diverse weight is you are a dishonest salesman. So that, you know, that somebody comes in to buy, you know, a pound of apples or whatever, and, and you pull out a weight that it says one pound, but it's actually three pounds. You know, it's like, okay, well, you're going to pay me. And, it says, and, you know, you kind of have this deceptive way of, of ripping people off. And God says, when you do that, when you rip people off, God hates it. God, it's an abomination to God. It's an abomination when somebody rips other people off and, 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 and in business and in personality says he hates that. He, he, he hates all that it is. And he says those things, those dishonest scales, not only does he hate it, it's just to look on this. It is to look on it and say it's not good. That's probably a simple way to say it, but it's worth just saying it. God hates it because it's not good. And because it's not good, because it's a destructive thing, God hates it. He looks upon that and, and hates when that happens, which again, by the way, was a very similar thing he'd said back in verse 10, if you want to just gaze back up in the early chapter where he just looked at this and said, diverse weights and diverse me measures, they are both alike an abomination to God, to the Lord. He hates it. He hates watching those things and calls us into to be a people of integrity, that we handle things wisely and, and not being dishonest in the way that we process things through. Well, flipping the booklet over, there in, in verse 24, turning the page, a man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? So a man's steps, the choices we make, the, the, the way that we navigate life, uh, he says, here's the thing, God's involved in that. God is, is involved in leading our steps. He's the one who helps us navigate those places in life. And yet he says, because it's that way, then how can a man really understand his way? Now, this is one of those fun Proverbs because it's been weaving its way through the book of Proverbs. We've already touched on a few of them, but maybe one of my favorites that says it in a different way that kind of leads to this, this understanding, was back in chapter 16, uh, verse 9, where he says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And we talked about then, and we've talked about it before, what an incredible understanding this is to understand the difference. We like to make plans. We make plans. We're always making plans. You know, whether they be plans for the rest of the week or plans for the rest of the year or plans for the next five years or plans for the next 10 years. He says, we make plans, God directs steps. God does guide our lives. He is a faithful God that does this. He's a faithful God that cares about you, who invites you to, to uh, allow and, and to seek his wisdom and life and living. God is not just up on the, you know, heaven watching everything. He is deeply involved in our life and he calls us uh, to ask for his guidance. But when he gives his guidance, very rarely, I don't want to say never because you can't put God in a box, but very rarely does he ever give you the plan. Very rarely does he ever tell you, knows here's what it's going to look like for the next year. Here's, what, here's how the whole month is going to play out. No, when he directs, it's the next step. Do this next thing. Do this next thing. It's where his direction is found. Now, sometimes his direction will right, go right along with your plans. You made a plan, and God's steps are just helping you walk in the plans that there. Other times, you'll make a plan, and then God's steps are like, okay, 
You know, I thought we were going this direction, and God says we're going this direction, and that's just a part of life. So, so knowing that they're different, knowing that it doesn't mean you can't make plans or that you won't because you just will. That's just how we're wired. But we just understand that God's ways are different. He directs us different. So with that in mind, you come to this proverb and says, since God is the one that's directing steps, since he's the one that says, I'll, I'll help you, I'll help you navigate your life. I'll help you make those good choices. Since he's the one that's doing this, then there's no way that you really have a good understanding of your whole life. He says, if you could, if you could look at this and think, okay, wisdom would tell me, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I really need to come into this place that just honors this. I, I think about it. There in the book of James, it talks about this and talks about the one that comes and says, hey, you know, I'm going to go buy and sell, and I'm going to go do all these things. And, and then James just tells us, you know, how could you, you have no idea what even tomorrow holds. So much better if you say, you know, here's my plans, if God wills. You know, I, I'm thinking of doing this, you know, but, you know, if God would direct, and yet being always open and saying, you know, that I, here's my plan, but God's ways are very, very different than that. And that would bring a very needed and necessary humility, a place that would remove us from the arrogance that so often rolls off our lips that, you know, makes us sound like we have everything under control, like we got the whole thing planned out, and I know how this is all going to go. And he says, you do not. And if you know that, it would just cause you not to be this way. And it's just a good space of just recognizing that's true. That is so true. I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know what that's all going to look like. Doesn't mean it's wrong to make any plans, but good humility says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm in for the journey. You know, I'm in to see where God's going to go. And I, I'm, my goal is to walk right in the things uh, that he has for my life. May God make it more and more true for us walking in those and walking humil- in, in that humility. Verse 25, it is a snare. For a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. It's a snare. It's a trap. It's something that goes badly in our lives. When somebody makes a rash promise and says, God, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to dedicate this to you as holy. I'm going to give you those things. And then afterwards, afterwards to become to reconsider it to have those places where you regret your vows where you move into this he says that's something that would be a big trap for us it's important for us to quickly understand god takes this seriously um there's actually a lot written about this in the scriptures you know talk about it when when solomon writes it in the book of ecclesiastes he goes through and unpacks for us that god doesn't demand that we make vows but if you make a vow you're meant to keep it. It becomes a place that vows are meant to be binding. So much so in the Old Testament, it gave things where if you make a vow, like you committed an animal or something to the Lord, to undo that, it was a serious offense. Some things couldn't be undone. Other things had to be redeemed as if you were stealing it. It, you know, that you had to not only pay it, but you also had to pay, you know, kind of the, the, what would often be the, the price of having something stolen to undo that. The simple weight of it would bring us into a place of recognizing that's a, that's a trap. It's a trap that messes up life and even brings us into guilt before God. And wisely, what it would simply be is don't be that person. Uh, don't be that person. And yet in our culture, again, it's just so common that people, you know, will have a hard day, or something will go badly, 
And then they just begin to make God unearthly promises. God, if you'll just get me out of this. If you just get me out of this, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a month, God. I mean, and I'm going to, and I'm going to memorize a thousand scriptures. And, and if you'll just get me out of this, I'm going to give you 50% of every, I mean, whatever. we start making these weird promises as if we had to bribe God. As if that's, you know, like God was like, oh, wow, you sweeten the deal a little bit more, you know. And as if somehow that's how prayer worked, as if somehow that's what God was looking for. Instead of recognizing, no, I don't want to go there. I mean, if I make a commitment to God, I want it to be a serious commitment because he takes it seriously. Otherwise, it's a trap for my heart. It's a trap for my soul. And it's something that brings in destruction. And he just invites us to become away from that. And in a, in a loose world that you and I live in, it's just wise for us to begin to understand the same thing, not to be someone who rashly devotes things to God, rashly gives those things to him that we might reconsider later. You know, wisely think, I'm not going to make a promise that I don't intend to walk on and, and walk out in my life. Verse 26, a wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. So a wise king, a good king, someone who's handling power, if you want to even think about it that way, well, it sifts out the wicked. It doesn't, you know, allow this recognizing that, that evil and, and the wicked things that are in the midst of that would only bring in destruction, only work in those things. So he would be this one that not only is sifting out the wicked, he brings the threshing wheel over them. The threshing wheel often used to, to, to basically crush and separate you know, the, the, the wheat from the, the, from the barley, the, 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 the things that would be there so that you kind of get rid of the chaff, you get rid of the, the junk that's out of there. And he says, here's what would happen is a wise king would do this, would say, okay, we're not going to just allow evil to stay. We're going to deal with that. And there's good principles of that within, within our world. It should be that way within government. It should be that way in power. And wherever that might even land with you, that it, to the extent of where you have power, there should be a sense of this. But can I tell you, the wisest king, he's doing exactly this. The wisest king is looking at our world, and he is patiently enduring evil, but he is going to rid it. He is going to be the one that sifts out the wicked, that is going to bring in the wrath of God, that's going to deal with our world and bring us into a, a, eventually a world where righteousness dwells. He looks upon our world right, right now not as a place of like, eh, it's okay. You know, he, he's not just okay. He's, he's enduring it now for the sake of, of saving people and rescuing people. But he is wise. And he is wise who is going to deal with all that's wrong. And it's just good to understand that and find yourself on the right side of that. Saying, God, I want to be the one that as you sift out the wicked and brings that over, that you would rescue and bring me into the things that are righteous and into the places that are good. All right. Well, flip the page. Verse 27. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. It's the spirit of a man, the, the way that God has designed us and made us. Uh, the, the Hebrew would have the idea of the breath, as God breathed into us living life, that we as mankind have a very different kind of makeup than, than, than animals or anything else. There's something unique in, in who we are. He says that spirit that he put in us, it's like a lamp. It's a lamp of the Lord that searches all the inner depths of his heart. Probably the easiest way to comprehend this is to understand that when we think about the spirit of a man, it's kind of that moral, intellectual understanding, which is probably best understood by the word conscience. 
that God has given us the ability to have this conscience, this being able to look on and evaluate life, to decide good from bad, uh, to make bad choices or, you know, be kept from bad choices by this way that God has designed us. He's given us this spirit of a man. And God would call us to that, that he would use that conscience inside of us to shine light on who we are, on what we are, and to direct us in the right way. And I think about that. I think about Paul who would say it in his own life. He says, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. That he looked upon who he was and here's what I'm always trying to do. I want to have that. I, I want to have this place that my conscience that would be that light, that lamp of the Lord that would shine into my life and, and I want to have it as, you know, I want to have a clean conscience. I want to have a good conscience. And it's a powerful way to seek to live your life. I mean, if you're just taking, again, what it tells us right here, the spirit of the man is the lamp of the Lord. It's this light that sometimes just sheds light onto who we are, why we do what we do. Uh, and it's like, okay, God, I, I just, I want to have a good conscience. I, I want to have a place that, you know, is pleasing before you. And so I'm going to try. I'm going to strive to it, Paul, Paul says, always to have that without offense toward God, towards men. I want to live such a life because it's grabbing hold of how God has designed us, which is a powerful way to live. Again, I don't know if that just lands with you. I mean, hopefully that you understand both of its place that God has designed you this way, that he's given you this conscience. He's given you this ability to have this internal policeman that is this spirit, this lamp of the Lord in many ways into our lives. But I hope that it's something that you seize. I hope it's something that's like, I, 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 I want to use this, what God has given. I want to have this good conscience. And can I even just hold out to you right now that it's possible? I, I think about it this way when the writer of Hebrews gives it to us. He says that, you know, it's by the blood of Christ that we get to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. He says one of the great things about what it is to be a follower of Jesus is that place where your conscience is defiled. I mean, you're like, man, I, I've messed up. I, I, mean, I mean, how could I ever feel like, God, I, I'm pleasing to you? How could I ever strive to have a good conscience before you when I'm so aware of the person that I've been? He says, that's exactly what Jesus can do. That's exactly what the blood of Christ can do that it comes into a place that by believing in Jesus and, and coming to him so that our sin is washed away so that, you know, we're not held down just like, oh yeah, you know, I, I've always been, I'm a terrible person. It's like, no, that's what I was. That's what I was. But it's no longer who I am. Jesus paid for that so that I can now have a good conscience, not defiled by what I was because that's been washed away but now living in this place where it can be this. And again, I, I don't know if I'm making as much landing as, in this as I want to, but again, for somebody here this evening, you already get it. You're like, yeah, I, I understand the conscience, and, and I am. I'm with Paul. I am trying, Lord, to, to constantly live a life that has a clear conscience. And, and if you've grabbed hold of that, it's a great place to live. It's a helpful tool in navigating choices. But again, I think I'm talking to somebody else that you can't even get there because the moment you try to have a good conscience, your past screams at you and, and you just give up. It's like, I can't, I can't feel good. I can't feel that, you know, God's pleased with me or I'm doing the right thing because I know what I am. 
And yet, I'm telling you right now, if you haven't come to Christ yet, then that's where you're needing. The, the blood of Christ can cleanse that and wash that, bring it to a place that it's no longer who you are, and, and bring you into a place where you can have a clean conscience, where you can say, God, I, as best as I know, I'm, I'm right with you. I've, I've confessed my sin, you've washed me, and, 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 and all my past is gone, and so I can actually live today with a clear conscience and, and, and seek to walk into that. And I'm telling you, the blood of Christ could do this for you. The blood of Christ could bring you into this so that if you're looking at what he says, you know, the spirit of the lamb is the lamp of the Lord, that it does this searching. And some of you are like, man, it, just never, it wouldn't do me any good because it would only find dark. Then let the blood of Christ cleanse it and then discover there's power. There's power in saying, God, I want to have a clear conscience. I want to, you know, move into the rest of the day and say, God, let's just do, I want to do so that there's not anything that, that I make, a cho- I'm making choices saying, God, is this, is this pleasing in your sight? Is this, is this pleasing to you? And, and there's power in, in seeking to do that, which is, again, in the midst of the wisdom that God is offering us, and I'm definitely offering it to you tonight. Well, a little bit more on that in a moment, but let's keep going. Verse 28 Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness, he upholds his throne. So we're speaking again of a king and saying, okay, someone who, who is that king who would reign over a kingdom or that person who has power, he says, if you do that and you could hold mercy and truth, if you could be you know, holding to truth and being mercy, he says, that preserves, that would bring in just that which would protect and, and watch over and at the same moment, by loving kindness, by mercy, that that would uphold your throne. It's a picture of an incredible king. It's a picture of somebody who has that in an incredible way. And we probably ought to just pause and say, outside of Christ, there's never been somebody that is that. Doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue that. Or again, any place that you have power. Maybe you're a business leader, you own your own business. There's a place of saying, you know, there's this place of wanting to be true and merciful and loving, all at the same time, yeah, that's how power is supposed to be used. And wherever that would meet you, it's great. But it's also good to come and say, this is exactly what we find uh, in our king. He's the one who, it tells us that in him, mercy and truth have kissed, that he's the one that is fully true and perfectly merciful and absolutely loving. And, and finding him to be our faithful king is incredibly good to recognize that he is exactly that. Verse 29, the glory of the young men is their strength and the splendor of old men is their gray head. So you have here the glory of those that are young. It's strength. It's that ability to be strong or grow in strength and and build those muscles and and have that. There's something that marks youngness that can do that and have that. And yet with that, the splendor of of old men, the, the, the honor of that is their gray head and the idea of wisdom and things that grow in the midst of that. Now, I'm not asking which side of this you fall on. Uh, But in one sense, it's just worth kind of pausing and understanding there's something that's seeking to be communicated here, that there's a place of valuing both sides of it Uh, and and, and all of that. And maybe that's a little bit of what's found in the proverb. David Guzik in his commentary quotes a couple guys that I'll just put the quotes on the screen because maybe they say it uh, pretty succinctly for us. He says, you know, a proverb to lift the reader above the unfruitful attitudes of envy, impatience, and contempt which the old and the young may adopt towards one another. Each age has its appointed excellence to be respected and enjoyed in its time. 
He says, one of the things this proverb can do is cause us to value those that aren't like us, to say, okay, yeah, you know, if you're young, to say, you know, to value those who are older and have wisdom, or if you're older and have wisdom, to value those who are young and have that, that strength. In fact, he goes on to say, let the youth and old age both beware of defacing their glory. Each takes precedence in the same things and gives ways to others. Let them not therefore envy or despise each other's prerogatives. Don't look upon it and think, well, you know, if, if you're young, it's like, man, I just, these, these people who think they know everything and been through things. Or again, if you're older and he's like, man, these people have too much strength and they have too much energy and, you know, wherever that goes. He says, no, you ought to be a place of, of valuing and say, I'm glad that's what your strength is. I'm glad that's what it is and I value it. He says, the world. The state and the church needs them both. The strength of the youth for energy and the maturity of the old for wisdom. That there is a sense of valuing both. And yet we live in a culture that so often seems it's one or the other. That it's either, it's either valuing, the, valuing the young and, and defacing the, the, the mature or valuing the mature and defacing the young. And there's a sense in Christ to be able to come and say, no, they're, 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 there's glory in both. And, and each in their own space to be able to say, hey, that's a good space to walk in. And may God cause us to go there. All right, one more for the evening. Verse 30, blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes, the inner depths of the heart. Blows that hurt speaks of discipline, uh, of discipline and that, would, that would work. That says when it does, it will cleanse away evil. It will, it will wipe that away as at the same moment stripes the inner depths of the heart. So in one sense, this is a proverb that just speaks to it. And you, and you can look at it, you know, much as it talks about in Proverbs as far as a parent to a child, that discipline done well. Uh, you know, it, 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 if it's done well, sometimes it does hurt or, or bring in conflict. But if, it, if it's held firm, it can cleanse away evil. It, it can cleanse away the depths of the hearts. Proverb, this proverb not just speaks about it, though, in a parenting aspect. It's probably speaking about it in life. Uh, some of the commentators talk about how it would really be from a king or, you know, kind of in this context saying that there is a place of, you know, holding consequences in, in society and saying, okay, you know, like, you know, you can't rob, you can't do those things. There, and, and where there's consequences, it holds back some of those things, that there ought to be there. And that's certainly true. Certainly true. There's a part of it that certainly in Christ we would recognize this value. It tells us in Hebrews that all of us as God's children get disciplined. It says, if you don't know anything about discipline, you're not his kid, because he disciplines all of his kids, and that's true. That said, you know, there may be something else in this proverb, just a, a nugget that's worth touching on that goes deeper and maybe more profound, because this idea of blows that hurts, cleanse away from evil, I can't help but just jump over to Isaiah 53, that tells us, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. What an incredible reality. I mean, if you can kind of look at it here in, in this proverb, it says, blows that hurt cleanse away evil. And that's exactly what happened. He, that, that, that he took upon Christ, took our blows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. These stripes, he says, the, the inner depths of the hearts, that, you know, he was, the, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, we become healed. You know, it's such an incredible thing to recognize it really does take that, and yet that's exactly what Christ is for us. That's what he's the one that brings it about in our lives, that he's the one that would rescue us from that. You know, we've kind of woven that throughout our whole evening, and yet I just want to hold it back to you again. We're not a perfect people. 
We're a people that are broken. And that's exactly why we need this. Uh, we, we have this, that Christ is the one that came to be our rescue, to be the one that could cleanse away our guilty conscience, that by the blood of Christ we could find in that help and healing. And if that's outside of where you are this evening, if you don't have that this evening, we're telling you there's no other way. Uh, this isn't a place where you could just figure out how to do life better or you know, some kind of self-help you know, seminar on Proverbs. It's a place that shows us who we are and compels us to come to Christ. And if that's you this evening, we're inviting you. We're inviting you today to believe upon Jesus and be saved. For many of you, you are though. And so walking into these places is this place where you're invited on one hand to grab hold of the incredible forgiveness that we have in Christ. Uh, to, to, to just say, okay, I want this. I want this place where I would be cleansed and I want to embrace what Christ is and let that rescue me into a life that now lives that out, that now I could walk in that clean conscience, that now I could be that person that's navigating life well. So I want to invite you into that, that you could grab both, into that space of just being able to embrace what Christ is for you and yet allowing that to rescue you and free you into the life that he has for you. So you can close your notebooks you have open or Bibles, and we're going to take a few moments, and we're actually going to move into a time where we're going to take communion. We seek to give you the opportunity to take communion as a church twice a month, you know, usually on Sunday.